This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So you guys ever wonder, like, why do we follow Jesus? Why do we do it? I think sometimes, like, if, if you've been in church your whole life, it's a question you might not have even ever thought to ask or a question you might thought we're not supposed to ask, but I'm going to ask it. Like, why? Why do we follow Jesus? Like, is there any kind of reward for this? And especially after last week, as we counted the cost, remember, in, in Luke's gospel, the counting the cost of following Jesus, like, we saw what following Jesus involves, right? It involves self-denial, right? Willingly denying our own desires. It involves embracing suffering, and it involves surrendering control to someone else. So, like, who does that? Right? And why would you do that? And let's be honest, you were all asking a form of that question to me last week after I ran a half marathon the day before, weren't you? you some of you asked it out loud. I appreciate the honesty, but you were all asking in my head, like, who, who in their right mind goes and runs 13.1 miles, right? And not because you're being chased by lions and tigers and bears, oh my, uh, but because you willingly chose to go run that distance. Who does that? Why would you do that? I'll tell you first why you don't do it. Uh, you don't do it for that little chintzy medal that they hand you as you cross the finish line. That is not the reward for running anything. But there is a sense of enjoyment that comes with it. There's a sense of fulfillment that comes with running and pursuing a goal. And so the reward is joy. And that joy outweighs the cost of my sore knees a week later still. And so this morning, as we continue this series, Following Jesus, inspired by Henry Nouwen's book, Following Jesus, Finding Our Way Home in an Age of Anxiety, we're going to continue, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, considering the reward as, as Jesus ends our passage this morning in John 15, verse 11, telling us that the reward for following him is that my joy will be yours, so that his joy will be ours and that our joy may be full filled with joy, overflowing with joy. Even on a day when the sinuses are bad and it feels like it's just kind of an eh day, there's joy in the eh. Maybe we should write that one down. What we're going to see this morning is the reward of joy. It's found in bearing fruit for God and giving him glory. And we do that through following the way of Jesus and obeying the words of Jesus. Those are the two ways that we're going to see that we find joy. And so John 15, just kind of a little context, a little uh, background here. John 15 takes place uh, late Thursday evening on the night uh, before Jesus was crucified. And he's just finished his final meal with his disciples, what we call uh, the Last Supper. And he, he leads them from the upper room, and he, he leads them through the streets of, of Jerusalem, uh, across the Kidron Valley, and, and, and up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And as they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem, they pass by the temple. And over the entrance to the sanctuary, uh, Jewish tradition holds that there was this elaborate golden vine with these golden clusters of grapes. And as they pass by Jesus, he says to his disciples who are following him, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, God's people, the nation of Israel, they are referred to as a, as a vine, as a vineyard, and God is referred to as the vine dresser, the, the caretaker for the vineyard. A vineyard that 
the psalmist says in Psalm 80, God dug up from Egypt and transplanted into the promised land of Canaan, transplanting it into, into richer soil where he, the psalmist says it took deep root and filled the land. And then the prophet Isaiah, he describes how God cared for his vineyard as the, the vine dresser. He says in chapter 5, he says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, and he dug it, and he cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. And he built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it didn't yield grapes. Instead, it yielded wild grapes, he says. And God was frustrated. God, he, he asked his people in, in Jeremiah 2, he says, how have you, how have you this, this choice vine of pure seed planted in good soil that I have loved and that I have cared for, how have you turned degenerate, he says? How have you become a wild vine failing to bear fruit and produce grapes so that we can make wine, right, fulfilling your purpose? And so it's against this backdrop of Israel as this wild, degenerate vine that Jesus declares himself to be the true and faithful vine, producing the fruit that Israel failed to produce, fruit the Father rightly deserves. And he goes on to say, as this loving and caring vine dresser, God the Father, he, he cares for his vine by pruning it. He says in verse 2, he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And Jesus later goes on to explain that we are the branches. Jesus is the vine, God is the vine dresser, and we are the branches. Now, while I've never grown grapes, uh, we don't grow any grapes in Arlington Heights in our backyard. I've only enjoyed the fermented fruit of the grape. Um, I am an Iowa farm boy at heart, and so I took it upon myself to learn a bit about raising grapes this week. And uh, raising a, a healthy vineyard requires uh, pruning typically two times in the year, once in the fall and once in the spring. The pruning that would take place in the fall would be after the harvest, where the branches that did not bear fruit were cut off and taken away and, and burned. Because those branches, they're not, they're not helping anything. They're not helping the vine. In fact, they're hurting it. They're hurting it because they're, they're consuming all the nutrients from the other branches but not doing anything with it. They're allowing rot and disease to infect the entire vine. And so this fall pruning that takes place makes for a healthier vine in the spring so that it can bear more fruit. That's the fall pruning. But then in the spring pruning is done as the vine begins to flower. And here you're pruning those shoots that are, that are growing a little too fast for its own good. They've not developed the strength to withstand the storm, the wind, and the rain. And so you prune them so that they don't snap off for their own protection. And you prune the, the young branches that, that they're growing, but they're not quite ready to produce fruit. And it'd be better for them to, to continue growing a bit more while the other more mature branches bear the responsibility of producing the fruit for the vine. And so Jesus, as he's walking along, he turns to his disciples, to the 11 that are still following, knowing that one's already been pruned that night. And he says to him in verse 3, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
And Jesus is doing a little wordplay here. He's, but rather than pruning us as his branches with, with shears, he says that he prunes us with his words, with his teaching. And as followers of Jesus, I think we've all experienced times in our life where aspects of our life, they've been, they've been trimmed, they've been removed, they've been cut off as Jesus prunes us and cleanses us. And even if we know that it's what's best for us, because he just said it is, the pruning still hurts, doesn't it? The pruning brings pain rather than joy most times. Those cuts hurt. Especially the deep cuts where your life maybe has grown wild. Uh, those painful cuts where even good things are being removed. And it's important when you feel the pain of the pruning to remember that while it may feel as though God is punishing you, what he's doing is preparing you to bear more fruit. This pruning, it's not, it, it, it's not his anger towards you. It is his love for you, isn't it? But we don't always see it that way. We don't always feel it that way. So I think we need this reminder over and over and over again. I know I have. Um, I've shared with you openly that 2021 was... Um, a season of pruning for me, it felt like. A season of pruning for us as a church. And, and while I felt like we were truly being faithful to the way of Jesus in our preaching, in our leading as elders, um, God made some deep cuts. He pruned some branches. He did that in my life. He did that in our church. And there were some deep cuts Especially some relational cuts that, like, still to this day, you can feel them. Maybe this whole pruning thing is why I woke up one day and decided to shave my head last year. I don't know. But this year feels different. This year feels way different. This year it feels like there's buds beginning to bloom. And when I look at the vine, while I realize there are fewer branches, I think I see healthier branches. I think I see more branches that are flowering. And as I reflect back on last year, it's, it seems almost so clear how God's pruning it was loving. That as he was continuing to form me into the pastor he had called me to be, he is continuing to form us as a church into the church he's called us to be. And you can see the fruit coming. You see it in the pantry when we serve together on, Sunday, on Saturdays. You see it uh, in the way as we are faithfully following the way of Jesus together. You see it in family ministry and the start of youth this fall. You, you see it in our worship, in our, in our prayer in the lobby at 930. You see it in our church home, our church family. And I'm seeing it in my own life, my own walk with Jesus, experiencing a newfound level of intimacy with Jesus, a newfound sense of peace and patience, and a more sustainable pace to life. Embracing my identity, not as a leader, but first and foremost as a follower of Jesus. Not my identity as a beloved pastor of Redemption Bible Church, but my identity as a beloved child of God. And I'm resting in that. I'm embracing that. And you can see the fruit of that on the top of my head. There's hair again, guys. 
I share this with you because that growth we all desire requires pruning along the way. And it's going to feel painful at times, but I need you to know that's not punishment. God's pruning is loving. It is caring. That fall pruning in your life of removing those things from your life, uh, even ending relationships, things that might be barriers to trusting Jesus and following Jesus, that spring pruning of, of redirecting the course of your life in order to draw you closer to him so that you can bear more fruit for him. Because it's in the bearing of the fruit that we find joy. Joy that Jesus promises is the reward for following him. And he goes on to show us two ways that we can find this joy in bearing fruit. And the first is this, that joy is found in following the way of Jesus by abiding in the presence of Jesus. We find joy in following the way of Jesus and directing our lives as we follow him, surrendering control to him. And we do this by abiding in his presence. He says in verse 4, he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, abide's probably not a word that's in our everyday vocabulary. It's not a word we use every day. But, but to abide, it means to, to dwell, to take up residence, to make yourself at home, and make yourself at home somewhere warm and cozy, like uh, inviting and restful. When I think of the word abide, I picture like a, a cabin in the woods, and it may be snowy outside, but it's warm inside. You've got a fire in the fireplace. There's a really awesome recliner. You've got a really good book. You've got a latte in the morning, a glass of wine in the evening. That's my picture of abide, and I realize for some of you, I lost you when I said book. Something else, replace book. You can define your own abide. But you abide where you want to be. And where else would you want to be but in the presence of Jesus? And Jesus, he's, he's inviting you to take up residence in him as branches intimately connected to the vine, the true vine, dwelling in his presence, making your home with him. And as we abide in Jesus, he abides in us, right? This mutual indwelling that takes place. As the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, as Paul refers to him in Romans 8, 9, dwells within us to the point that we become inseparable, right? Vine and branches. Christ is the head. We are the body. Henry Nouwen writes, the joy of Jesus is a joy born out of his ongoing intimacy with God the Father. Joy flows from that communion with the Father, bringing a deep sense of belonging. And Jesus is inviting us to share in that joy, to share in that intimacy as we abide in him, finding our sense of belonging in Christ, where we belong, where we were meant to be. Our sense of identity as beloved children of God and our sense of purpose in bearing fruit for God. He goes on to say in verse 5 and 6, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire 
and burned. When we look back over the course of humanity, we as a whole have produced incredible things on our own apart from Jesus. Plenty of people who want nothing to do with Jesus have done incredible things, art and architecture, uh, technology and, and medicine. And as bright and as shiny as that fruit may appear, what Jesus is saying here is that everything done apart from him is nothing. It's nothing. It'll be burned. Those branches that are growing their own way, growing apart from the vine, they'll be cut up and gathered and burned. I think it's safe to say we don't want that for ourselves. We don't want that for our loved ones. We don't want that for our friends. And if we're honest, we don't want that for anybody. So then what is this fruit? How do we produce this fruit? How do we find this joy? Like, is Jesus here? Is he like, does he know what Paul's going to write about in Galatians 5? Is he referring to the fruit of the Spirit here? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is that the array of fruit that he's talking about? I think it includes those things, but I wouldn't want to limit it to those things. Because I don't think Jesus here, he's talking about just one thing. He's talk, I think he's talking about everything. I think he's talking about the entirety of our lives lived in his presence in following his way. I think he's referring to here to what we think and what we say, to what we do and what we create, our living, our loving, our being with God, our becoming who God has uniquely created you to be, our worship of God. Our telling others of who God is and what he has done. All of it is the fruit. This visible, vibrant fruit that is beautiful and bright and tastes sweet and brings joy. That's the fruit and how to find it. And I think what that also then means is that our lack of joy comes from following our own way. And living a life apart from Jesus as branches trying to grow apart from the vine, chasing things that distract our attention and draw our affection away from Jesus, attempting to sustain ourselves apart from the strength of the vine. And as a result, rather than producing fruit, what it produces in us is fear. Rather than experiencing that joy and that intimacy that I think we all long for and desire, we experience worry and anxiety. And we end up frustrated and exhausted with nothing going the way that we had hoped. Nothing going the way that we wanted. But then Jesus says something interesting in verse 7 and 8. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, just to clarify, God's not saying, um, Jesus isn't saying here that God the Father is a vending machine. You swipe your credit card, hit E11, and he's going to push out a Milky Way for you. Or Twix, whatever candy bar brings you joy. Almond joy. They've got nuts, though. Mounds don't. God's not just giving you everything that you think will bring you joy. And thinking that, I think, comes from a misunderstanding of prayer. See, the second part of verse 7 flows out of the first part of verse 7. Those two go together. The second part flows out of the first part. What I mean is that praying to God flows out of abiding with God. Uh, I grew up, um, I grew up before a driver's license in my house, up in my room, in a farm, away from everybody else, 
Uh, I remember on weekend nights playing Nintendo, and I remember just sitting there, chit-chatting with God on a Friday night, you know, while the kids that are three years older got to go driving around. And um, fast forward a few years, and you start to learn about what prayer is, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm terrible at prayer. I've never prayed. I can't, I don't know how to pray without ceasing. And it's always kind of bothered me um, that prayer just didn't quite feel right. It felt limited and restricting in what uh, this definition of prayer was. And then I came across this book by David Benner, uh, Opening to God. And in the first couple of chapters, I felt as though he was describing 11, 12-year-old me up in my room on a Friday night playing Nintendo, hanging out with God. And he described that encounter as prayer. And he, he says in here, he says, prayer is not simply words we offer when we speak to God. But I, th- I think that's how we've defined prayer, isn't it? We, yeah, God speaks to us through his word, and we speak to him through prayer. That's the super simple answer, right? Prayer is not simply words we offer when we speak to God, but an opening of ourselves to God. He goes on to say, understood more correctly, prayer is what God does in us. The genuine prayer always begins in the heart and is offered by an act of opening ourselves as we turn toward God and trust in God in faith. What he's describing here is, is prayer as an act of vulnerability that brings about intimacy with God. As we abide in the presence of Jesus. And by opening ourselves to God, God works in us. The Spirit stirs in us, and what happens is that his desires become our desires. His will becomes our will, and our prayer to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Spirit is for thy will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what Jesus is saying here is that um, by opening ourselves to God, when you wish for what God wills, he says, ask whatever you wish then, and it will be done. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this desire to live out God's will as we follow the way of Jesus, what it does is it draws us closer and closer to him. It fosters even greater intimacy as we follow Jesus, abiding in his presence as branches intimately connected to the true vine, bearing fruit and bringing joy. That's the first way we find it. And number two, Jesus goes on to say that joy is found in obeying the words of Jesus by abiding in the love of Jesus. Bet you weren't expecting to come in and say joy and obedience going together. But that's exactly what Jesus is going to show us, that joy is found in obeying his words by abiding in his love. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus here, he is uh, extending an absolutely incredible invitation to us to participate in this divine, perfect love that has always existed. First verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created in the heaven and the earth. Have you ever wondered... What the prequel was about, though? What what was God doing before Genesis 1-1? What was God doing before creation? 
And what we know is that before the creation of time and space, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit lived together, loving one another in perfect, intimate community. Right? Jesus, he's going to go on to pray to the Father in John 17. He says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me before Genesis 1.1. Because what we know to be true is that God is love, isn't he? Love isn't. Love isn't what God does. Love is who God is. And his love for you is simply an outpouring of who he is, not a response to who you are. And Jesus, he is inviting you into and to participate in and to abide in this eternal love of the Trinity. Abide in my love. Dwell in my love. Make your home in my love as I love you the way the Father has always loved me and I have always loved him and we both have always loved the Spirit. Sounds too good to be true though, doesn't it? It must because rather than running into his arms and abiding in his love, we turn and run and hide, don't we? And I think we do that because love requires vulnerability. And that might be one of the scariest words in the English language. To be vulnerable, to open ourselves. Because the level of intimacy that Jesus desires with you, it will expose who you truly are. And we are deeply afraid of being known by others, aren't we? Of the real us being known. And as soon as these words come up, like we hear the enemy whispering, you're unworthy of being loved, we hear, because of who you are, because of what you've done. You feel unworthy, and that makes you feel unwelcome, as though you don't belong, you don't measure up. He must not be talking to me, he's talking to the other person. I've loved you, but not me. You feel unworthy, you feel unwelcome, and you feel undeserving because you feel undeserving of love because you haven't done anything worthy of being loved. You haven't done anything deserving of being loved. And so you close yourself off unwilling to be loved. We simply refuse to allow ourselves, our true self, to be known by anyone, and instead project a false self in hopes of it being loved. Brendan Manning, he writes in his book, Abba's Child, he says, we even refuse to be our true selves with God. We, we try to think we're going to pull a fast one on God, don't we? I'm an omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, everywhere God. We think we're going to pull a fast one. He goes on to say, and then we wonder why we lack intimacy with him. We won't be ourselves with someone, but we desire intimacy with someone. You see how that doesn't work? And then he goes on to say some of the most haunting words I think I've read this year. But God loves who we really are, whether we like it or not. God loves you as you really are, whether you like it or not, whether you accept it or not, whether you believe it or not, it doesn't make God's love for you any less true. He knows who you are. He knows what you've done. I mean, isn't that why Jesus came in the first place? 
I guess in some sense we're not worthy. We're not deserving of his love. And that's what makes it grace. That's what makes it beautiful. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, the real you, just as you are. And he's inviting you, the real you, to come and abide in his love because you are his beloved. That is who you are. You are not what the voice in your head says you are, what the enemy whispering in your ear says you are, what the world says you are. You are his beloved. You are his beloved. And that means you're not only welcomed by Jesus, you are wanted by him. You are not only known, you are loved. And I think we'll agree nothing brings more joy than being intimately known and deeply loved. And there's no one who knows you or loves you more than Jesus. Who else left the comforts of heaven to live and die for your sin? No one. Only Jesus. He didn't just say he loved you. He showed you that he loved you on the cross. And that means that in him our identity is as one loved by Christ, a beloved child of our Father, of our Abba. Amen? Maybe just write that in your notes. I am a child of God. Abiding in the love of Jesus, it leads to living out and obeying his words, keeping his commands as his words abide in us, he said back in verse 7, taking up residence in you, permeating every part of your being as we eat up these words, this, these nutrients, if you will, into our body. They take up residence in us leading us to living out his word, obeying his word, thereby bearing fruit and bringing us joy. And then he closes in verse 11 saying, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus wants you to be filled with joy. Jesus wants you to live a life overflowing with joy that impacts others as we go out loving others. But that joy can only be found in following his way and obeying his words, abiding in his presence and his love. And so if you're here this morning, you're like, I want more of that, Pastor Ash. I want more of the joy. I want more of his love. I, want, I just want more of Jesus. Then hear these things that he has spoken to you this morning. The way to greater intimacy with Jesus is through greater faithfulness to the way of Jesus and greater obedience to the words of Jesus. Because joy is found in bearing fruit for him. And so I want to ask before we move on, what is that step for you? What is that step of faithfulness? What is that step of obedience that he is calling you to take this day? And as you think on that, also know that while you're, remember that your faithfulness, your obedience it won't lead to Jesus loving you more because he can't. It's pegged out. He can't love you any more than he already does because he loves you the way the Father has always loved him. But while it won't lead to him loving you more, it will lead to you loving him more, trusting him more, enjoying his presence more, enjoying this life that he has blessed you with more. Knowing that while your love and your obedience and your faithfulness is not perfect, it won't ever be perfect in this life, 
Our joy is made full and it is made perfect through Christ's perfect love and obedience to the Father. And that's the good news of the gospel that we get each and every time we open this book. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.